Hello, and welcome to SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And today we are, we are moving a little farther back in time than we've, than we've previously discussed, and we're going to be discussing Star Maker by Olaf Stapledon, which was written in 1939. And this is one of my choices. Um, so I guess we'll just jump right in. I can, I can sure. start with the summary. I, I have to say, if you are able to summarize this, <laughs> well, you can, but I'm, I'm all ears. Let, let me hear you make a good run at this. Well, you can either summarize it really briefly or you have to basically tell the whole story. So the really brief summary would be that a man uh, begins to um, basically, he has a mental journey into outer space and, and across space and time, and he meets... Um, is able to meet and observe uh, many different alien beings. Uh, he joins together with a sort of group mind that that um, is able to perceive more about the universe, and in the in the end, at the climax, is able to actually perceive the creator, the star maker, outside of the universe, and understand um, the star maker as as a or understand our universe as part of a continuum of universes made by the star maker. Yes. At yes. which point he then uh, returns to his, to his body essentially and his mm -hmm. time and on, on, you know, a hillside in the, you know, in England in 1939. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so that's the very, very, very broad outline, but it doesn't even begin to capture all the different, Oh no. <laughs> All the different things, and and basically, um, there's a fairly hierarchical progression. Um, yes. Where, at first he well, at first he's kind of lost in space. He he doesn't understand what's happening. He thinks maybe he died. Um, he's traveling. His viewpoint essentially, his disembodied viewpoint, is traveling um, first up to the speed of light, and then past the speed of light. And it took him a long time to realize he'd he'd gone backwards in time when he did that. Mm -hmm. um, his own. It was, it was beautiful to read, actually, because especially when he was passing through the solar system, it was very cinematic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so much of old Stapledon, um, his prose. It's funny because he packs a lot into a relatively short book. It, mm -hmm. but and yet still, there's a feeling of, uh, especially at the beginning, of um, fairly. I wouldn't want to call it purple prose, but a lot of description. Oh, it's it's funny. When I started reading it, I, I immediately said, "This is the literature of the time." Mm -hmm. That's that's the best way I can express it. Um, so at first he he fi finally finds a, a world with a culture very similar to our own, and he spends at least a chapter there, and he comments on how how the aliens are different and, and what's, you know, what's different and what's similar to ourselves. And then what, um, yeah. And he goes, a, goes a lot into their society, their history, their culture. And it feels very much like, um, a critique of, you know, the, the culture of Stapledon's own time. Did you oh, get completely. that impression too? Completely. Um, I, I immediately thought of it as being in the tradition of, um, Gulliver's travels and Flatland, of course, which we're going to be, I'm looking at later in, in the podcast series, mm -hmm. um, and it's it's very much using science fiction as as metaphor or or as a don't quite want, quite want to call it a parable, but but you're you're taking the problems of the world that you are living in 
and just putting them in another setting entirely, such an alien setting, that in a way nobody's able to pick sides. You right. know, you're just presenting it as is and then saying, oh, okay, no, you look at it like that, what do you think? So it's, it's, it's really interesting to look at it as it does that because when, when I see that being done, I always think to myself that this is a, a I'm not going to call it a subgenre of sci-fi, but it's definitely using speculative fiction to a particular use that gets a lot of credit in, in literary circles, let's mm-hmm. put it that way. Yeah. Right. And and Stapledon here is coming at the tail end of a period where that was a very, it was almost an active sub, subgenre of what would later become speculative yep. fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, H.G. Wells had done it uh, to an extent. Um, Edward Bellamy had done it a little earlier in Looking Backward. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was very much part of what, what the genre was expected to do. Mm-hmm. Well, when you look at his own background, you could appreciate because he was a philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, that was his field of study. Um, and, and I mean, it sounds even wrong to say that because by the time you get into Star Maker, you begin to realize that he's he's got this breadth of knowledge, breadth and depth, I would say, of knowledge, where um, he's he's able to not just world build, but but gala- galaxies, universe. He's able to, to do all that because he's pulling in information from a lot of different disciplines. Right, he's definitely got an understanding of astronomy contemporary with Edward Hub- um, sorry, Edwin Hubble, mm-hmm. and and of physics to an extent um, up to Einstein. Yes, and he definitely incorporates that understanding pretty pretty solidly into his into his world building and his characters' travel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's also living in a very interesting historical period because he's right before the Second World War. He's between the world wars. And you can detect that. Um, you can detect that in things that he's focusing on. Absolutely, especially near the end. Right, right. Um, and of course, he's in last and first. Okay, so I should step back for a second. Starmaker is is stapled in second major science fiction work. His first is called Last and First Men. Um, Starmaker makes it clear there's a continuity between the two. If you're reading through Starmaker, and as he's taking in these broad swaths of galactic history, if you start to ask mm-hmm. yourself, hey, what happened to humans in all this? The answer is that you need to go back and, and read Last and First Men. Yeah, yeah. Um, which tells that story in a whole book. Um, in that book, humans are one of the races that never make it outside their own solar system. <laughs> yes. Uh, which I find s- refreshing. <laughs> which I find refreshing. This, this whole story is not a triumphal story of how mankind, humankind triumphs. No, no, no. No, no it's not. <laughs> We're one of the dead ends of galactic history. Yeah. Yes. Very humble position to take. Yeah, yeah. And if you, um, by the way, if, if anybody has read and enjoyed Star Maker, I, I strongly recommend Last and First Men. It was the first stapled in that I, that I read, and, and I just absolutely fell in love with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and Last and First Men, again, he wrote that a couple years before, I think it was 19, published in 1936, and even then he could see the next world war coming to an extent. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, his, his, basically, his description of the end of our period of history, you know, of, of us being the first men, um, that... Uh, that was fairly prescient, frankly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Rather disturbingly prescient. The first, like, two or three generations of human 
of you know intelligent life to arise on earth you're, you're like oh that that hits close to home Ouch. <laughs> yes yes and and well maybe twitch is when he started talking about the use of um subatomic energies for weaponry and i'm like oh boy <laughs> yeah which is again you're just like damn man fermi didn't even um get his nuclear reactor going until 1939 congratulations yeah. Well, there were some things that he said. I'm sorry. I'm I'm actually cutting you off, and I should let you finish your summary because there's going to be a lot of my jumping in and seeing all this stuff. So let me hold no, my no, tongue. I think I think you know we can just plow ahead, really. Um, okay. Because yeah, I think we're just going to have to kind of go through it because so so we've got the you know when he when he meets up with these first people, the first people he can really relate to, and he's finally able to make contact with the mind of another one of these individuals. So instead of him yes. just being a disembodied viewpoint, now he can communicate mind to mind and share the perspective of mm-hmm. basically his opposite number in this other culture. Who also happens to be a philosopher. Who also <laughs> happens to be a philosopher. What uh-huh. a surprise. Mm-hmm. Oh, and what I, sorry, go ahead. Well, before we, um, how did you find the actual intro where he's sitting on the hillside in England? Before oh, um, he, he weaves <laughs> on his journey. How did how did that strike you? It's going to sound kind of bad to say it like this, but typical of its time. Oh, really? Um, if you read, I mean, I, I look at that and I think of George MacDonald. I think of early C.S. Lewis. Mm. Um, um, it's, there's there's a there's a familiarity in, in that kind of approach, and it does. I think you use the term purple prose. Uh-huh. It does feel a bit almost indulgent, yeah, almost yeah. Um, navel-gazingly indulgent. <laughs> but it is not unusual. And even the way he sort of describes his home life, um, where, you know, you, you, you never, he has a wife and kids. You don't know how many kids. You don't know what his wife's name is. You don't know what the children's <laughs> names are. It's all very distant. Yeah, it's all it's very all abstract. Very, yes, very abstract and almost theoretical, you know. Yes, and, and you can say that I, I have a family and I feel certain warm things towards them. It's, it's, it's a very, yeah, it, it really is like that. But it's, it's, a, it's a framing. It's a framing for the main story. And in a way, it is... It is very typical of that kind of, of the whole the whole book. If you love characters, if you love characterization, there's nobody in this book you're going to feel attached to. Nope. It nope. really reads. It reads like a big, long, um, you know, non-fictional textbook in many ways. Yep. Uh, where you're you're dealing with all these little historical footnotes, some philosophical musings, a little bit of sociological exploration. And it's, it's strung together in a way it's very interesting, but it's not very personal. Well, and I think he himself says this is not a novel. Yeah, there you go. There are no there characters. There's no plot to speak of. This is... Mm. But what it's just, I it's love, a big, long exposition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's nothing. It basically, if you take every strip, everything out of science fiction except the world building and the sense of wonder, that's what yeah. you get from Last and First Men and uh-huh. Star Maker. Yeah. And I, I, I love it all to pieces. <laughs> you know, what I said was, even, even as I... And the thing is, it wasn't that I struggled with it. It was that you didn't warn me what to expect. <laughs> no, I didn't. And I, and I see now that you do this on purpose, but that's okay. <laughs> um, and the way I described it after I made my old four-plus notes of, of quotes and notes um, was it's a compilation of practically every sci-fi idea ever. But that's like the thing, favorite. he did, it's a compilation of every sci-fi idea ever, except he did it before all the rest of us. Yes! 
It is lovely. And you could tell you can tell that the reason why this was possible is precisely because he was so aware of the real world theory behind so many of these things. The real world theory, both in terms of the physical sciences, the social sciences, um, yes, questions of theology and philosophy and so forth. He, he had all of that all nicely, um, you know, connected and intersecting and, and able to put it into this, this fictional framework in a way that made it just completely convincing. So, so yeah, I, I, I appreciate it. But as you say, it's not a big book. Mm-hmm. But it will it will take you a while to read it. I know. I will though, finish it, and you'll be like, "I need to reread that." So, <laughs> well, the funny so thing is, not- even though I was rereading it, I um I find my found myself surprised how long it took me to get through it. In fact, I I mentally was sitting there going, "I should apologize to Karen because yes. I'd forgotten how dense <laughs> this is." Dense is precisely the word. It is. It is not. There's nothing really you can skip. You yeah. can try. But you'll end up having to go back anyway. <laughs> it's it's not um, there's there's no there's no padding there's there's no there's no oh we're just going to be frivolous for a whole while and 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 have fun no it's it's all very um, very very serious in a way I would say yeah yeah it takes itself very seriously as well but not not in a bad way not in a bad way I think it, it, it in a way it deserves to take itself um, with a certain amount of seriousness but well, what I was going to say is. Um, the bit that I found really cool, and, and I mention this because, as you say, he had just found um, his counterpart, uh, and his counterpart is also a philosopher, and they join minds, and eventually they join other minds that are traveling and become more of a group mind, and it kind of expands from there. But what I found fascinating about the group mind concept is not only his personal experience, but also the experience of the cultures he describes. So the first place he's on, they have something that he calls radio. <clears throat> and then he talks about how having radio affects the the population of civilization, and basically he's describing the internet. Yeah, because I remember. I, I yeah, I was I was clipping pieces out, but this this was a bit that I clipped out. A highly specialized bureaucracy, or even a world dictator, might carry out the business of organizing the world's activity with legally absolute power, but under constant supervision by popular will expressed through the radio. And it was like, wow. Because <laughs> it was not, this is, sorry, I should point out, this radio was not simply, um, you know, like television kind of imposing uh, a certain culture or a certain, um, you know, type of entertainment on people who just took it in. It was definitely, it seemed to be a very reciprocal kind of thing where the popular will could indeed be expressed through the radio in the same way that the radio could then um, um, transfer information to the population. Um, so I thought to myself, good grief, you know, this is, you know, kind of almost cyberpunk before it's cyberpunk. <laughs> <laughs> the Just worst punk of cyberpunk ever. <laughs> you know, it's, it's almost steampunk cyberpunk, if you want to think of it. <laughs> and, sorry, go ahead. Well, there was one thing that, that I did want, that I did write down in my notes, which was, the whole thing is so intensely from a middle-class, educated, British, liberal, humanist perspective. You forgot Oxbridge. Oxbridge. Good point. Good point. <laughs> um, and and it, especially, I mean, less the being British, because obviously I'm not, but, um, but everything else, you know, the middle class, the educated, the liberal, the humanist, uh, the secular, it, it just still hits me, you know, very very close to where I live intellectually. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it, it 
again, throughout all the decades, it still just completely resonates with me. And I think, again, um, you know, it presages so much of the rest of the science fiction field. It does. It really does. And and they've given, um, you know, as I was, you know, flashing through the internet, because it's one of the books that when you read it, you want to find out more about the author. Yeah. You want to find more, more about, you know, the context that he lived in, um, what he studied, um, you know, um, and, and, and what the connections are. And And as you said... And begin to look for what other authors were influenced by him because it seems like such a clear connection. Um, the classic example is um, Isaac Asimov's The Last Question, mm-hmm. which is almost a miniaturized version of the progression uh, and even a part of the common theme of what happens in Star Maker. You know, you know The Last Question. Yeah, yeah, yep. But I shouldn't assume that everybody listening knows the last question. Oh, good point. The last question is a short story, one of my favorites. And it deals with the question, um, what happens, what, what, what do we do about entropy? Eventually, all the stars are going to burn out. The universe is going to wind down. What are we going to do? And the way it's, it's done is almost completely opposite to the way Star Maker is done, yeah. where you have little vignettes throughout the, the history of the universe where people keep asking the questions. So you start off in almost like a 1950s type setting where the computers are multi-vac <laughs> and, and, um, some, and, and, you know, some bored scientist feeds in the question and gets the answer, insufficient data for a meaningful response. And, and then, you know, you jump forward some generations, better technology, other people, question arises again. Of course, they ask another far better computer, and they keep getting this answer. And eventually people, you know, they merge, they have that group mind, they merge with their artificial intelligences. So there's also, there's also um, it's not just a, a biological organic mind, it's also an organic life. And they keep asking the question, and, and the universe does eventually kind of, you know, the stars burn out and everything goes cold and, and the mind is still there pondering this last, last question that they were not able to give an answer to. And, and then they got the answer, realized, oh, well, you know, there's no one to demonstrate it to. But, you know, the demonstration will itself provide an answer. And then the last line is, let there be light. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's very, it's very, um, I, almost, I almost think of it as, as going hand in hand with Star Maker. With, with that, I mean, it's, it's choosing to focus on entropy and, and, the, and, and but the, the, the way the universe evolves, the way the people kind of merge together in their group mind and everything like that, that has so many echoes of what happens in Star Maker as well. But so that, that's what, sorry? Well, it's the, it's the opposite side of the coin, isn't it? Mm. In what sense? Well, because I was just saying that, you know, in our universe or in, in the universe of the narrator of Star Maker... Um, mm-hmm. we're just one of a number of universes and the next one is going to be created by this this uh, being outside of space and time. Right. But our universe is not, you know, won't, won't be renewed, right? There won't be any continuity between ours and the next. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in Last and First, or, sorry, in Last Question, mm-hmm. um, there's actually something that entities inside our universe can do to create the next one. Okay, um, I agree, except are we sure 
that that entity remained fully inside the universe by the end of it. No, it had to not be fully inside the universe. But it, okay. <laughs> but yeah. it, I guess my take on it is that it seems to have originated inside our universe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, it is yeah. still us affecting our own fate, just at a distant remove. <laughs> mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. that's not true in Star Maker. Yes, that's true. There's there's not that same sense of um, of continuity. There's a sense of, if I may say. Corporate continuity, um, where maybe your particular backwater of intelligences didn't make it off the planet or didn't make it off the system, but in the sense that there's a communality of the kind of intelligence that arose mm-hmm. and the and the kind of, of values or urges that were considered to be important, mm-hmm. um, there is that sense of a of a communal drift towards some aha. Here's a word for you. Or make a point. Have I not talked to you about the Omega point? No, no, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, mm-hmm. Huh. I hadn't thought of that, that in connection with Star Maker before, but, you know, okay, I can see it. Do you want to give a capsule explanation of it? Well, Omega point is a little bit of theology from a Jesuit called Teilhard de Chardin, who um, managed to get himself in trouble with the church, as um, thinkers often do. Uh, um, but he was, he was basically contemporary with Stapledon. And I can't see any information to let me know that one influenced the other. But I can at least say that they would have been steeped in, in the same influences because they were contemporary. Um, both his, both um, it, sort of the political, um, societal atmosphere as well as the discoveries in science and, in, and the questions of philosophy that were being discussed at the time. So the idea is that the the universe is evolving towards some some perfection, some pinnacle, which he would describe as the omega point, which is almost precisely what Stapledon portrays in Star Maker. Mm, okay, okay. And well, yes, I don't know. Yes and no, because again, the the mind. So again, um, let's let's talk about the hierarchical progression of the intelligence that the narrator's part of. Okay, mm-hmm. So first, he he finds his opposite number on the culture, the world, the alien world, very similar to our own, m- melds with them, um, and then they start gathering other people into the group mind who again are on that same level of intelligence. Mm-hmm. And it isn't until they become a little more complex. There's definitely a, a sense that you know. The, the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, right? So as they right. build more um, intelligences into their group mind, they're able to perceive and understand higher levels of being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and they do eventually, you know, they gather and gather and gather and and um, across space and across time, um, they meet stars. They meet galactic minds, which is mm-hmm. kind of amazing. So the stars, the stars are actually a conscious and intelligent and aware. That was cool. Yeah, yeah. It's, sentient stars is just one of those mind-blowing things that you're like, wow. You know, mm-hmm. he, not even very many authors since then have done anything with that. And, and he does it so pragmatically, it doesn't, doesn't appear to be far-fetched at all. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You're like, oh, yeah, I could totally see how that could work. Um and and so again, there's this building and building, and and I see where at a certain point you do reach that omega point where you've gathered all the intelligence of the universe into this one uh, entity in a way, mm-hmm. and that entity is able to perceive the universe and its limits, and even the creator outside of the universe. Mm-hmm. But 
it's not really the ultimate, is it? The Star Maker is still the ultimate. Oh, um, I was not implying that the... When I said pinnacle or the ultimate, I didn't mean ultimate in terms of deity. I just meant in terms of the urge of the universe to kind of come together to that sort of high point of evolution. Oh, okay. Then at that point, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. In fact, what I'm doing now, because I always feel badly when I... um, sort of slap together a summary. I'm just quickly checking the internet to see if there's a precise definition of the omega point that I can use. A maximum level of complexity and consciousness towards which he believed the universe was evolving. I'm so sorry that's Wikipedia, but it's short and it's easily accessible. Yeah, so, no, yes. okay. In that point, in that case, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so yes, it's, um, it's kind of interesting. I mean, in, in a way... Um, although I said not not deity, Teilhard de Chardin did imply or did argue that the Omega Point resembles Logos, which is Christ. Mm-hmm. But in a sense, it's God within the universe or God um, incarnate in the universe as opposed to, um, you know, um, what's, what's the opposite of that? Shoot, I should know this term. Drawing a blank. Moving on, um, but and not not in not in a way the star maker was both inside and outside the universe, mm-hmm. not outside of time, but actually within it and part of it. That's that's what he means by you know resembling the logos in that sense. So so yeah, I just I found that fascinating. I found it fascinating because again, it it shows you the extent to which you can get similar threads of thought or similar directions of thought emerging from people in quite different areas, but who are in the same time and being exposed to the same events happening in history and in scientific discovery. Um, so that was absolutely fascinating to me. Half a sec. I'm just checking my notes again because there's some other people who I thought to myself um, reminded me very much of this work. Do you know Diane Duane, The Wounded Sky? Um, I... I know her, but not for that work. Okay. This was, I think it's probably the first work by her that I had read. Um, you know the Wizards books, don't you? Yeah, that's the ones I'm they familiar with. Wizard, right. Well, this was actually a Star Trek novelization. I shouldn't say novelization. Novelization is when they actually film it and then make a novel from it. These, You know how they had all those Star Trek books? Yes, tie-in novels. Tie-in novels, that's the term, right? And um, she she wrote this one called The Wounded Sky, which was later made into a not particularly good Next Generation episode. And and it's about, they're using this drive, which ends up doing some really odd things to the fabric of the universe. Mm -hmm. But in the book, she, they encounter uh, a separate universe, which is almost like, contains a proto-deity. But the deity and the universe are sort of like, all encapsulated so it never knew there was anything else and because it broke into it um it was then awakened in a sense and and had to then cope with this concept of of communication and loneliness and all sort of thing so they ended up sort of talking with it and inspiring it to do a lot of creation (laughs) and they kind of left it went back to their own universe and there was this new universe of the creator kind of or, or intrinsic intrinsic with a built-in creator making new things, making more things. Mm-hmm. 
And again, there was a part of Star Maker that was so much like that, where you know he was he was talking about the Star Maker having levels of maturity, where on the one hand you could say there was uh, already in existence uh, a mega a mega point style of Star Maker who was already at the pinnacle, but um, in on another level there was also a kind of a, sort of a, a child version or a junior version in terms of maturity of the star maker starting to make things, um, you know, making mistakes, finding interest, things um, not coming out as they expect and just making more and more cosmoses and, and incorporating what they learned from previous ones. Mm-hmm. And that sounded to me so much like the, the, the wounded sky deity that again, immediately you say to yourself, you know, you wonder if this author read, but you know, it's it's a it's a good trope. It's one of those good tropes that will just fly into the brain of any writer who wants to take it out. Oh yeah, well, um, when I was doing my so that, EU... that that was sorry. Mm. No, you go ahead. I um, when I was doing finish. my my Egan research, um, especially when I read Diaspora for the first time, I was like, "Oh my god, this is so Stapledonian!" So when I was doing my rather extensive interview with Egan over email, one of the early questions that I asked him was, "You know, basically, how how much were you influenced by Stapledon?" And he was like, "Um, yeah, not so much. I maybe read <laughs> Last and First Men when I was a kid, but I don't really remember it." I was mm-hmm. like, "What? What? Oh my!" That's crazy. But, but I but I see what you're talking about because again with Egan, um, I he's, he's another name I flung down in my notes because there is that remember they mentioned having um, sort of a transmigration between linked universes mm-hmm. um, and also here, here's a, here's the note I took um, in other creations a creature was given only one life but this was a zigzag line alternating from one temporal dimension to another according to the quality of the choices that the creature made. Strong or moral choices led in one temporal direction, weak or immoral choices in another. Well, leaving out that last sentence for the moment, I immediately <laughs> remembered um, the short stories that we looked at where there was that whole question of parallel selves and choice to the point where, remember, they created that um, artificial intelligence which was supposed to be the embodiment of um, a single entity who would be able to make a single choice. Right, in Singleton. Thank you. Singleton, that was what it was called. <laughs> and um, <laughs> obviously I had it in my, my subconscious somewhere. And I, I was looking at that story especially because at the time that we discussed it, I remember I said to you that I couldn't quite get the, the sort of the thread of the story, which seemed to, to suggest that the absence of a single choice somehow made the protagonist feel cheated. It was as if the only real choice you could make is a choice that wasn't being unmade, by, unmade or made differently by several other yous and other timelines. So the singleton choice um, seemed to have more power or more validity in a way, mm-hmm. in terms of actual free will. Yeah. But um, Stapleton's approach to it is is a little is a little gentler, where. He's he's very much a infinite diversity and infinite combinations kind of dude, and um, you know morality or or lack of morality aside, the idea that you can um, have all these different choices that branch off into into different possibilities, or because that, that was another option he mentioned, person makes um, has this sort of choice point, but makes all the possible choices and then various 
you know, different, like, I guess, lines of, of possibility branch off from that. Uh, this, is, this is seen as something almost to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm almost more in that line of thought for that. So yeah, Egan, Egan especially. Oh, and Lengel. Madeline Lengel. With, oh yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. The, the star maker being both um, able to have time within the cosmos being created, but also being outside of that and having time with respect to um, their own existence. Mm-hmm. Very much like the Kronos and Kairos that you would encounter in Lengel's works where there's almost a sense of um, ordinary time and angelic time. Right, right. So much good stuff in here, really. Yeah, I, I, almost, I almost feel as if you need to, if anybody's like, yeah, I, I want to write science fiction, but you know, I, I don't really think I've read a lot. I'm like, here, this is the only book you need. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say this and Last and First Men. Okay. To me, they okay. really do come as a pair. Um, mm-hmm. I, when I was thinking of which one to recommend for this podcast, I was like, well, you know, Star Maker hits the themes that we hit a little more close to home. True. But true. to me, I, I, I really do love them as a pair. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you, you just go sorry. through and, and for instance, uh, Stapleton's got railways on a Mercury-like world that, that encircle the world and keep the sun, you know, keep the, um, the cities moving out of, of the direct sunlight. That's what Kim Stanley Robinson yes. just did in his, <laughs> his hit book last year. Yes, in 2312, is... um, you've got stuff that reads a lot like David Brin's Uplift Universe. You've got, yes, you know, you. I was that, yeah. It's so much. There's just uh, Charles Brown and I once. Um, I was talking with Charles Brown years ago, and we basically agreed that every almost every science fiction story written since 1939 took place in Stapleton's universe. Yes. <laughs> This is so true. In fact, there there was only there was only one thing that th- sort of threw me off his mm-hmm. um his concept of stellar evolution. Really, because he he pretty much follows the uh, Hertzsprung Russell diagram to a T. Um, there was something he said where um unless I, unless I got a bit uh, bogged down in the bit later on where the stars were actually exploding on purpose to kill people on planets. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um but no there was there was something there when he was talking about the sun having gone through a red giant phase and then cooled down to be where it is now which is actually um quite the opposite of what should happen okay i didn't catch that one okay yeah so so that that was where i was like hang on um so i i get the impression that he maybe knew of stellar types but not necessarily um the progression Hmm. Like I say, it seemed to me like he usually followed the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, which I which I also went and looked up and was developed in 1910. So he should have known that one. Okay. Okay. Huh. Because I was I was surprised at that. I I almost shoot. I almost feel I should go and you know do a little search and, and find exact bit because I didn't I didn't actually cut and paste it. But it did it did sort of startle me because I thought, hang on, you know, because um, he was he was actually oh this was when he was talking about stars being sentient. So he was he was describing their various, I don't know if you want to call it stages of maturity as well or growth mm-hmm. maturity. So um, the the sun was supposed to be more mature than the ones that were red giants, right? Uh, another point I wanted to make when I mentioned earlier that Flatland and Gulliver's Travels were very much of the same mold. 
it makes me really appreciate now just how subversive Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass are. Because when you look at it, there's just not very much that's really, truly moral, theological, or philosophical in there at all. <laughs> it's really completely uh, a mad and made-up world for its own sake. Game of cards, a game of chess, that's, that's pretty much the only thing. He's just completely playing. It's not, it's not one of those, you know, we're now going to examine the state of our world by, by using an allegory kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you you can have you can have sci-fi that's this very much trying to do some kind of uh, moral message or or at least you know have a, a fresh angle on an, on a real world situation which could be either sociological or directly related to the hard sciences because you can have your what ifs um, either for what people are going to do or for what technology is going to do, but just to have um, pure play, you know, pure fun. That's that's definitely another another kind of tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Although one thing I did want to get in before I forgot again was that Ola Stapleton even did Dyson spheres before Dyson spheres were cool. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Actually, the 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 kind of detail, the kind of detail that he put into the different possible species, the different possible, um, you know, technologies and modes. Of, I mean, he had artificial stars. He had um, asteroids hollowed out to become worlds. He had aqu- completely aquatic worlds. I mean, it was, it was really, it's, 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 I was going to say it's like a, it's, it's like a geography lesson, but of course geography is entirely the wrong word. Uh, <laughs> you can't call it, can you call it cosmology? No, you can't really either. It's not quite. It's it's like an encyclopedia of of science fictional, yeah, stuff, fun stuff. It's like the attic of science fiction, where you find yeah. all the interesting bits that somebody has already you know gone through. Yeah. Can yeah. can we talk for a little bit about my favorite sim, uh, my favorite intelligence that that he trips across the the sim, symbi- symbiotic species where one half of the symbiont pair is an insectoid and the other half is aquatic yes <laughs> yes 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 and he actually <laughs> talks about how much bringing this kind of intelligence into the co- the hive i don't want to call it a hive mind that's exactly wrong the group mind mm-hmm. how much they make a difference in the universe yes and and you almost get the impression when i was reading that bit um, at first, when you read the very beginning where he's kind of talking about his, his family and his wife and his kids, there's a, there's a sense of almost, shush, he's almost disillusioned. He's almost slightly bored in a way. Mm-hmm. And you get that feeling of, well, you know, this is, this is sort of the 1930s. And um, although quite a lot had happened after World War I, there's still this sense sometimes of the man's sphere and the women's sphere of life being very separate in some ways. Absolutely. So you do get male writers of that era being particularly oblivious when it comes to the whole question of what women do and what do women think of. And in a way, when I got to this bit about these two different species that, that basically become... Um, kind of a, a joint intelligence. There, there seemed to be something in there that was actually dealing with the question of of gender in some sense, where he was talking about 
I'm trying to, oh, I should have, this is a thing I should have clipped out a note with. Because it was a line, it was like a single line, almost a throwaway line. Where again, he was seeming to suggest that it's, it's when you have people from such different spheres making the effort to, to connect and to understand and to communicate that you really get a full enrichment. Does this sound familiar to you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good. I was beginning to worry that I was just imagining it. But I, I kept looking because when you're reading somebody who's published in the 1930s, you are looking for certain, certain historical quirks. And I have to admit, he confounded me. Because I would see in the one era where I'd be like, yeah, okay, typical whatever-ism for that era. And then he would proceed, sometimes in the guise of his different framing, to produce such a nuanced and, and, uh, and mature and completely um, overturning view of what I thought was, you know, this is your typical um, kind of blinkered version of the 1930s, that I, that I suddenly realized I couldn't, I couldn't make any assumptions about him as a writer at all. Yeah, and one thing I love is how he always refers to the, for instance, the um, the first aliens he meets, the ones that are most similar to us. He always mm-hmm. refers to them as human. Yes, thank you. Exactly. Um, he does that, and he does it in a way where, literally throughout the whole book, everybody is. He he talks about them as as mankind. Yeah. If you're intelligent, it's mankind. Exactly. I mean, it's the most... There's no genetic connection with us at all, but they're all mankind. Yeah, it's the most expansive possible definition of of us, of self. Mm. Um, He he refers to them constantly as the other humans. Not as aliens, not as the other, but as other humans. Mm -hmm, They're mm -hmm. like us, we just haven't met them yet. So that that was one thing that that I really noticed a lot of, and, and it kind of um, was cemented by the time he got to his epilogue where he's drifting back to Earth and he's, he's sort of doing a kind of mini scan of Earth's countries and present so, so societal status, um, societal situation um, as he's drifting back to his actual house, um, his consciousness, I mean. And, um, you know, he's, he's making comments on, you know, Dutch and, and British colonial <laughs> um colonial aspirations and so forth that, that just kind of tie in to, I, can't, I don't think I can use the word liberal for this, but it, anti-colonial maybe? Yeah, yeah anti-colonial. a little bit, at least an understanding of some of the problems there. Exactly. And, and again, as I said, you know, that whole overview of Earth just had that, that hint of um, being very aware that the, the, the continent, if, if not the globe, was on the verge of this great conflict on the horizon, this, the shadow of a conflict um, overhanging. And there were just some things in there that, that almost echoed that same, in a brief, in a very short space of, of a few paragraphs, echoed that same level of, of detail and, and, and intuition. Looking at the alien societies, he then turned that eye to the his his own present day real life um, cultures and countries, and had had something to say about that. Sorry, I drifted a little bit. The point I was making is that so he has he has these things. I mean, you you reeled off a list of the things he thought he was, you know, the sort of liberal, agnostic, humanitarian, this, that, and the next. But um, 
I actually found it difficult to peg him because every time I thought he's expressing the usual position of X, he would then turn around and say, give another example where it was like, yeah, but you know, that doesn't always work. And here's the example, you know? So, you know, the one of the classic examples is the one I gave before when he talked about the radio, mm-hmm. Dr. Bill Will being expressed through the radio so you could even have a dictator. Mm-hmm. Now, prior to that, it was he was very much doing a whole champion thing of democracy thing. So then he suddenly goes, yeah, but you know what? You can have a dictator and here's how. And you're kind of like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and, and he would do this a lot. I mean, there were times when I was like, you know, is this man a eugenicist? He's talking a lot. I know, about- yeah. There's, I, was, I actually have a note that says, utopias, yay, eugenics, boo. <laughs> <laughs> like oh that's but not good even the, even the eugenics thing he doesn't really stick with no. because it's never really quite clear and he plays with it a lot whether the if you want to use the term uplift whether the uplift he's referring to for species is biological or cultural in nature mm-hmm. and there's even a point where he makes a, makes when he's talking about stuff the star maker has done in terms of experimenting he, he talks about um, you know the star maker say creating one one type of entity where the um, the the behavior and the and the and reactions is is very much you could almost say biologically determined. It's not really a question of free will or, or some sort of divine spark or like that. But then then creates another entity where it is more of a sense of of you know this sort of um, you know free will soul whatever whatever. And then proceeds to say, but you know what? For observers, they probably couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> you're right. like okay then and, and I, he does that a lot with eugenics where on the one hand he's acknowledging the scientific um, sort of fact of say um, you know the you're, you're, you, you do have a distance between let's say homo erectus and, and modern man but at the same time within modern man you would probably have some variations of it that would be acting in a less civilized fashion than some variations of Homo erectus. So there is this still this sense of um, you, and, and don't even get me started on the illusion of superiority. He he definitely skewers that. He talks about this this imperial power, this imperial intelligence that arises and decides that they want to express themselves by conquest because clearly they're so good that they need to spread their their um, superiority across the galaxy in these different benighted um, um, inferior places. And, you know, and he does that and he outright refers to them as mad. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He doesn't. He doesn't even mince. He doesn't even mince words there. He just says, "Yeah." And these, these were the, the mad empires when did X, Y, and Z, and and they're they're eventually they're conquered by pacifism. Um, not specifically a pacifist, but superior force that was able to, uh, let's say, exert a certain amount of mental influence on them to remove some of that madness, as he describes it, that the the madness of imperialism, and then. Their fate was some transform themselves to become like um, the people they've been trying to conquer, in other words, to become more pacifist and more live and let live. Some fell into inertia because they were so wracked by guilt when their eyes were open to what had happened and what they did wrong. And then others committed suicide, like entire societies just committed mass suicide 
And, and it was interesting because it wasn't even a case of, oh, the superior intelligences came and tweaked them mentally and everything was perfect. No, it was still a case of, you know, you do this, but it can still lead to their destruction even when they wake up and realize what they've done. Um, and some of them fought amongst themselves and just end up killing off each other as well. I think that was one of the other right, options. Right, falling back into barbarism or... Yeah. So, so nowhere is anything presented as a, a cure, a, a perfect answer. Um, there are definitely some things that are what you might almost call natural consequences of particular scenarios and actions. Oh yeah, he presents so many ways that civilizations can can succeed and so many ways they can fail. Oh man, and some of the ones that the, the way they, the ways they could fail. Oh so those, man, that was a depressing chapter, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it was very You were just like, oh, that's it, we're all doomed. But then he goes right on and, and talks about all the ways that, you know, all the paths that, that different civilizations took to, to brilliant success. Yes, yes. Oh, and here's another thing that, that just really struck me as being, again, completely ahead of its time. Uh, one of the civilizations he describes is very much like an eco-parable. The trees... Oh yeah, intelligence yeah. trees and, and almost became queasy. They almost fell asleep. Right, Vegetable. right. <laughs> and, and they suffered when they developed artificial lights, and that really screwed them up for a long time. And they they separated themselves from the roots of the planet. And I was like, oh well, there's that's flat out metaphorical for you, isn't it? <laughs> uh -huh. I mean, that could have been written in you know 1988 or something. There are so many things that he described that if you were desperately seeking inspiration for a sci-fi novel, you could just go in, pluck out a civilization, do a little nice little front note saying, you know, inspired by Olaf Stapledon's, you know, star maker, give the credit where the credit is due, and you could have, man, there's so much meat in there. There's so much that you could do with that. I remember when I read Last and First Men, I think it was the very end of either our generation of humanity or the next generation of humanity. And I was like, he knocked off something in a paragraph that another author would take a trilogy. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, would, would develop in a complete uh, trilogy. It was just stunning. He, he does not waste um, pages. He oh, really oh, here's, one, here's one quote that I picked out because, again, he, the, the narrator is sort of apologizing for going through things so fast. And he says, Basically, I have to dismiss in a few sentences whole protracted epics of scientific adventure and personal courage. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, yeah. that's all you do. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. I mean, really, after, after the first world and the very first philosopher that he merges minds with, there are no new names. There are no new names. There are no new people. And then the next individual, if you want to call use that term that he meets really is the star maker. Right. I mean, it's, it's just, it's exponential acceleration. I mean, I, I noted in my notes that I'd forgotten how long it took to get to the first planet, the first other civilization. Yeah. And, um, and then I'd forgotten how long he lingers in that society. And then mm -hmm. after that, it just ramps up. <laughs> yes. You know, it just, he, he puts the pedal to the metal and just goes. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, you get these incredible epics of interstellar, even interstellar warfare, just handled in a page or two. Yeah, like a you know a finger snap, basically. Yeah. No, I'm just glancing at my notes again. Uh, I. Ooh. Oh, let's talk about him and telepathy. Okay. 
uh, I found it very interesting the way the emphasis that he put on mental ability and not just in the point of view of you're on a planet and the way to becoming a sort of a global consciousness is by telepathic communication with individuals around you. Not just that. I'm talking about the whole idea of, well, interstellar travel is all very well and good, but because of the distances involved, because of the question of time, he's basically envisaging it as only being possible through some kind of mental talent. So there's, there's basically, there appears to be faster than light telepathy mm-hmm. communication. And also, well, I guess you would have to call it, um, oh, what's the term? What's the term for an out-of-body experience? Come on. Oh, uh, ast- it's almost astral. Astral projection. Yeah, it's almost, almost like astral projection or, or astral travel. Astral, ta-da, see? By the stars. So, uh, yes. <laughs> so that so he, he, he does that, and he does it in a very almost matter-of-fact way, where amidst all the other very kind of concrete and um, solidly based scientific stuff, he's like, yeah, you know, this telepathy thing, this is actually core to the whole question of the development of the universe, cosmos, the galaxy, in this particular direction. And I did find that fascinating. Yeah, I mean, to to him and to his generation, and and it's funny because, so to that generation, uh, interstellar travel seemed basically impossible. Then you had World War II, the post-war golden age science fiction was like, oh yeah, we're going to be doing that any day now, no problem. (laughs) And Uh then since the 80s, it's gone back to, well, that's going to be really hard, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But you know, he did mention, he did mention... Um, some level of propulsion by by fuels. Yeah, and no, by I mean, a, he, he talked about so, a few ways that that people had mm-hmm. chosen to do it or were able to do it, but it it was always just incredibly onerous. Yes, and he even spoke about because in spite of all the telepathy and all the the astral projection and so forth, he did say that there are times when interstellar travel was like a must. And by this time, he's describing a galaxy where people are practically like. Um, sort of moving planets into other planetary systems. And, oh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and then he starts talking about, oh, they decided they wanted to take a star and, and move to the next galaxy because they're starting to connect to, to, to make communication with other, with other galaxies in the universe. And that's when the stars start to blow up because the stars are actually sentient. The stars are like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, okay, so here's something, and this I just picked this out a little puckishly, but let me throw that out there. Would you say that those stars are Taoist? Sorry, would I say the stars are what? Taoist? Because they seem to be very committed to the principle of least action and right action. Oh, Taoist. Sorry. Yeah. I heard you say Dallas. I'm like, what does J.R. Ewing have to do with that? <laughs> Okay, I'm in Texas, but I swear. <laughs> okay, um, do you know, it's, it is funny you mentioned that. What I saw the stars representing, if they were a metaphor at all, is the concept of angels. Because angels basically do their duty. Mm-hmm. They, 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 have, they have a wider awareness than the ordinary human being, with free will, obviously. And they basically do their duty. They are, when, when they have philosophy, natural philosophy, and talk about things like the music of the spheres and so on, I mean, I think even... 
as much as I don't really like mentioning it because I don't like it very much, even when you look at C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, mm-hmm. he, the, the planets kind of seem to come with an attending angel. So, so there's this concept of um, the, the intelligence of a, a, a heavenly body actually being manifested as an angel. So I thought that he took the, the sort of characteristics for the stars that he emphasized were actually very much on par with the characteristics of the angels that theologians had been talking about, you know, in the, in say middle ages and so forth. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. But in, in the modern sense, yes, indeed. They do sound very much like Tai Chi masters. <laughs> <laughs> um, that just, that just tickled me when I thought of it. I don't think they'd blow themselves up though. No. <laughs> right. Right. Now, one thing that struck me in the moment that that the narrator perceives as part of this group line that he first perceives the star maker is I got a feeling kind of it echoed the sparrow for me in that um, it felt like he was almost struck down in the moment of achieving unity with the Godhead. That. Because, sorry. So go ahead. Yeah. Well, no. What would? How's that strike you? Um, I thought he had that bit a bit later because I think that initial encounter, it was almost as if he was still trying to grasp what he was looking at. And then as he began to, to uh, have a level of communication with the star maker and began to see what the star maker had done and its stages of maturity and how it had grown and its own, its own kind of overarching perfected self that still had participated at some level even in its less mature stages as he grasped all of that the real kind of you know almost epiphany or being struck down is when um he almost got to the point where he couldn't grasp what had been done and why it had been done so when he was talking about things like the um trying to make sense of of suffering for example or or trying to make sense of why the star maker would split themselves into two spirits and have competition and so forth. And then he was saying, you know, these were things he couldn't agree with. These were things he didn't like, and yet he could not help but worship. So, ah, okay. so for me, for me, it was not just the first glance, but the, um, and, and you could argue that in a way that is still like the sparrow because Emilio's problem in the sparrow was not really that he didn't believe in God anymore. It was that he still believed in God, but just could not wrap his head around why God would do such a thing. Right, right. I guess I had that feeling in that first moment because, you know, um, to the narrator, it seemed like once he caught a glimpse of the star maker, he's like, yes, this is it. Everything has come to fruition. We've all come to this moment. And then he just is struck down by the incomprehensibility of it all. Right. And then yeah, he yeah. has to kind of recollect himself and observe and, and discovers all the other things you're talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I liked I liked the fact because one of the things I appreciated was that all through the book, as he's describing consciousnesses and intelligences that are beyond human, I thought he did an excellent job because it's so easy to to almost simplify it. But anthropomorph I never do this word right. Anthropomorphize it. Uh huh. And he managed to avoid that rather well, not only in describing non-human intelligences, but also in describing collective intelligences, going from the individual to the group to the galactic to the cosmic, etc. But the line that I absolutely loved, hang on, 
To speak thus of the universal creative spirit is almost childishly anthropomorphic. That's one of his lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I thought to myself, you know, for that line, I could, I could just forgive him any kind of mistake that he made or any kind of thing that I, I didn't quite grasp or, or didn't quite agree with. Because um, I've read so few future sci-fi type books or even fantasy novels that really gave that sense of human intelligence is not the pinnacle of intelligence. Mm. you know that really gave that sense of you know if you're going to talk about superior intelligences there has to be a level at which we're like oh i don't know maybe um an earthworm trying to get a concept of um a conversation happening at a laundromat <laughs> to be to be completely random you see what i'm saying yeah so there, there's just there's just some things i mean i think i think the classic example that's usually given and i can't remember from where is you know you have a dog as a pet you have you're very attached to this dog and so forth but there's some things that you have to do for this dog the dog doesn't understand mm-hmm. so if you're taking the dog to the vet and kind of gets held down and, and jabbed with needles and it's giving you this look like what are you doing <laughs> um it's sort of like you're you're talking to her like you look you know fellow you need this you know this is this is going to help you in the long run just trust me but you know that that is that is something that we can understand in terms of our day-to-day experience you know dog intelligence the human intelligence there's a level of communication but there's some things that we can't quite explain to each other not least because for example dogs can smell a lot better than we do and have that difference oh and the first the other humans that stapleton describes mm-hmm. they have that um enhanced sense of smell and he does this marvelous job of describing a society where a lot of what they're doing is based on smell based on taste smell and not on um not on sight right right in terms of in terms of the kind of the kind of metaphors they will have even the kind of of, of religion right, um different they, they or... everything like that um just just related to to, to 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 taste and flavor and smell um but anyway so so you know we have that scenario and yet i've read so many books where even if they had um, some big bad villain, even if they had some higher consciousness that comes in and saves the day, they really don't give a proper sense of how beyond or how different such an intelligence can be. Mm-hmm. But Stapleton does it really, really well. Yeah, yeah. Even while acknowledging his own inadequacies. I mean, he, he exactly says, he's like, there are things I understood when I was part of this group mind that I can only gesture at now. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's it's an incredibly it's a it's a book that really is very mature. It respects the intelligence of the reader. It has expectations of the intelligence of the reader. Yeah. No spoon feeding whatsoever. No, no, definitely not. And like like I say, that one word to describe it is definitely dense. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. cannot skim Star Maker. <laughs> But but let's go back to the question of suffering, because he does delve into that quite at, at great length. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're not going to tell me that this didn't strike you at all? Uh, it didn't really jump out at me as a theme, actually. Oh. No. Okay, no, okay. This is by the time he gets to the Star Maker. Well, just before, a little before he gets to the Star Maker, he's talking about when um, the kind of the galactic almost sort of almost cosmic intelligence has reached a certain level and they're able to look back 
at, as he refers to at, at their childhoods, you know, the, the sort of the formative stages oh, they went through. Could I, could I inject one quick sure. tangent in, in that? Did you notice that at a certain point when the, the mind that he's part of switches to be cosmical, he goes back to using I instead of we? Yes, because it's a, it is, it is, yeah, because they've merged that much. Yeah, because it, he, he actually, he makes a point of when he stops using I and starts using we, and he, he consciously explains to the reader, he's like, I'm, I'm, I, I felt like an I when I was part of this mind, but I'm going to use we because I want to differentiate between my own personal consciousness and what this group mind's doing. Then mm. there's a point, and he doesn't note it, but there's a point when it really becomes super galactic. Yeah, that he starts using I again, which in a way fits because at that point there are there are almost in that sense no others. There's no in order to have a we, you need to have an other. Ah, if you good have, point. If you have just yourself, mm-hmm. you, it's automatically an I. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I like that that reading of it. No, that. But anyway, okay. So go on. Um. What was I saying? What was I saying? Yes, so so they look back on on their formative years and their struggles and and the various things that they did did wrong and 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 how they had to go through these very painful experiences, and he does it in a way that's almost um, you know understanding and indulgent and like yes you know but look at where we are now it was worth it, and I thought okay well that's his view of suffering hmm all right fine but then later on he comes to the star maker and, and of course we have the, the he gets to see the star maker fashioning. Um, kind of um, early cosmoses where the the he had not yet perfected his art and he's still in the process of perfecting his art because they make it clear that the present cosmos what sorry not the present cosmos the cosmos that the narrator is connected to right which so, is by default our own right is neither the earliest nor the latest of the ones that the star maker has been creating so what happens then is that he begins to see that there are instances of suffering that cannot be explained away by, oh, this was all part of our growth and evolution and we wouldn't be where we are if we didn't have this. So, um, again, I had thoughts of vegan because there's this whole question of can there be growth without suffering? Mm-hmm. Can there be distinctiveness even? Um, can you have certain characteristics without having vulnerability? Uh, this, this is one, he's talking about the star maker here, talking about a particular creation. He loved them without pity, for he saw that their distinctive virtue lay in their finitude, their minute particularity, their tortured balance between dullness and lucidity, and that to save them from these would be to annihilate them. So this is literally a question of these entities that are kind of separate and alone and suffering because of that, and the narrator is kind of questioning whether the star man could not have made it so that they could also have awoken into this wider awareness and, and skip that suffering altogether. Mm-hmm. But then he's saying, but you know, if he'd done that, they wouldn't have been who they were. And, you know, he's, he's looking at them and he still has a, there's still, there's still, there's still love. There's still that connection and there's no pity, even though they're suffering. And I found I found I found it very fascinating. I actually hadn't come across that so much. But then again, that's one little bright spark. And then he goes back into questioning suffering because um, you, you can talk about it as the same principle that they themselves came up with—the collective mind—that to have 
lots of diversity and lots of combinations was was in some way to enhance existence. But let me just read this one. It's a little long, but bear with me. It's worthwhile. There had been a time when I myself, as the communal mind of a lowly cosmos, had looked upon the frustration and sorrow of my little members with equanimity, conscious that the suffering of those of these drowsy beings was no great price to pay for the lucidity that I myself contributed to reality. But the suffering individuals within the ultimate cosmos, though in comparison with the hosts of happy creatures they were few, were beings, it seemed to me, of my own cosmical mental stature, not the frail, shadowy existences that contributed their dull griefs to my making. And this I could not endure. Yet obscurely, I saw that the ultimate cosmos was nevertheless lovely and perfectly formed, and that every frustration and agony within it, however cruel to the sufferer, issued finally, without any miscarriage in the enhanced lucidity of the cosmical spirit itself. In this sense, at least no individual tragedy was vain. And he's, he's struggling. He's going back and forth and back and forth. And, and, um, and, and, the, and the worst of it, I think, for him, and in a way, again, this does remind me of Emilio and his own crisis of why, why is God allowing his suffering? He looks to the star maker's reaction to this. He looks to the star maker's approach to this suffering. This is, this is basically um, not an early cosmos, but this is like the, the final perfected ultimate cosmos, and it still has in suffering. And the star maker's approach is like that of a craftsman who has done something beautiful and perfect and is just very much attached to that. And then, he's, then the narrator says that this should be the upshot of all our lives. This scientist, no, artist, keen appraisal. So he's, he's actually a bit disturbed that the star maker's response to this is not a kind of an, an empathic kind of, oh no, this suffering, but very much a, a sort of a, a craftsman appraisal, which is like, yes, there's suffering in here and see how it enhances the beauty of this and that and this. So he, he, he can't grasp this. And then he says, and yet I worshipped. That, that was the bit I was telling you about earlier. Yeah, yeah. Where, where it's like he, he actually now has this full picture of a being that he cannot completely understand and whose who's, you could say whose morals he doesn't understand either because he's allowing suffering suffering built in to this perfect cosmos mm -hmm. and, he, and he's trying to reject he's, he's rejecting this vision this perfect cosmos he's trying to reject the star maker and he's saying but I couldn't I was, I was, I was still I was still worshipping I was still praising and, and that's um, that's interesting it's very interesting and I can understand why C.S. Lewis had problems with this. <laughs> but I do suspect and I do wonder whether um, C.S. Lewis in, in his earlier years had more of a problem with it than in his later years. That'd be interesting to find out. Yeah. I'm going to find out someday. I'm going to do some research. I say that specifically because there is a lot of Lewis's concept of suffering that changes after his wife dies mm, okay and i i do think that perhaps it's not perfectly expressed in in the paragraphs i read out the very long ones i read up just now mm -hmm. but but the, that's still that sense of even if you can't explain it the concept of suffering being built into the universe is something that 
um, is not necessarily indicative of the presence of evil. Right, right. Not giving my opinion on it because that's that's above my pay grade. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> that's a level of philosophy and theology I I have I have not um, I have not been dealing with. But to see Stapledon dealing with it and dealing with it in a way that I find very courageous. He doesn't come down on one side or the other. He's yeah. like on the other hand, and on the other hand, on the other hand, and then he just says, "Well, yeah, this is somebody who I should hate and despise, but I'm worshiping them." And there he leaves you with it. And he yeah, says, I deal mean, with it. It's very nuanced. Very nuanced. Although you, you'd mentioned earlier that you found it hard to, to peg him with a label, but the label that, that I can't help but peg him with just overall is humanist. Yeah. Um, Despite the fact that humans are the ones in the dead end. <laughs> yeah, well, but you, you know what I mean. Uh, a broader sense of human, yes. In the broader sense of human. Mm-hmm. Um, but... And it's the same thing I see in Egan as well, and and in a lot of science fiction. I think it's actually it's one of the reasons why I, I like sci- why I'm drawn to science fiction as a genre, is that it is so humanist in in its values of of um, you know the human place in the in the material universe and mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It just it even though it's so impersonal, and and Stapledon is science fiction at its most impersonal. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that it approaches the universe in such a humanist way. It's just something I just absolutely love about the genre as a whole. Yes, yes. And and even though he doesn't connect to many individuals within the story, within this novel, there's still a, a, a warmth and a caring and an affection that that is, that is no less important just because it's collective. You know, it's kind of like we're not being shown relationships between people, between individuals, but we are being shown communion between larger groups. Well, yeah, actually, I think I noted, yeah, in in one of my notes, I actually said, um, civilizations are the characters here. Yes, that's it. That's perfect. Yeah, can't add to that. (laughs) Which is is just stunning that anyone's able to do that. And and again, with the humanism, when, so... um, you know, when the, the alien civilizations are trying to move the stars to, to try and do intergalactic travel, right? Mm-hmm. And the stars are like, holy crap, what the hell are these little insects around me doing mm-hmm. to me? And they start exploding. And it takes, it takes a long time for um, the communal mind of the galaxy to make contact with these stellar minds because they're so yeah. alien to each other. Mm-hmm. But they do finally find a way to communicate and when they do, the humans are like, oh, well, I mean, the humans, the, the group mind is like, oh, hey, we're sorry. Mm-hmm. We didn't know. Yeah. We'll stop. Right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, so they Sorry, I just, I just, you just reminded me of something. There was a point at which he described stellar sex. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember that? I just yeah. remember that. He talks about them, because yeah, um, the, another, another um, lapse in astronomy is that um, I think he didn't have the formation of planetary disks. No, he he yeah, very that well was, done. That was off. So um, you you always had the situation where it had more of an accident, which of course made planets even rarer in the universe than we now know them to be um, in the galaxy that we now know them to be. Although and again, that was that was appropriate to his time. That was it was entirely entirely. But you know, he's describing well, well these these stellar intelligences while they get a certain level of satisfaction from 
choosing the correct path in the cosmic dance and, and the actual motion of, of their motion through the galaxies, through the galaxy. Um, they occasionally have a moment of, of bypass with another star where the, like, the filaments can touch, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, they would send out a, a, like a flare or filament and that would touch. And he literally describes those stars who haven't experienced that as virgin stars. Right. In case, in case you had any doubt. <laughs> as to what he was going for there. Yeah. And, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he implied that planets tended to be formed from those encounters. Yeah, yeah. That was the implication, I believe. So... So then he has this little bit, which is almost humorous, where when they first start, the stars first start having trouble with these these weird um, intelligences trying to move them out of their nice orderly dance. They're like, oh well, you know, maybe these bad things happen because we indulge in these and these. Um, yeah, we're we're being punished for our sin. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and they didn't even want to tell the other stars about it. Yes, it was so funny, and it's and it's a nice little. Yes, dare I call it human? It's a nice little human touch, right? Right. <laughs> that, you know, you you have these sort of um, these sort of sort of stellar guilt over over what in effect is a, a sexual act that has produced offspring, and the offspring are now um, you know becoming a bit stroppy, and and you have to deal with the consequences. And you're like, oh no, we should never have had sex. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> so that that bit that bit was, and I I chuckled. I actually chuckled at that bit. I did. <laughs> He does these little paragraphs or these little throwaway lines where you're where you're just looking and thinking, yeah, you just you just made a huge massive commentary on some aspect of ethics or something, didn't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> all the time, all the time. Yeah, I mean, you almost can't. I mean, I do the same thing. I talk about, oh, he had a throwaway line about X, Y, or Z, and and I'm like, there is no such thing as a throwaway line in Stapleton. There, no, there, there isn't. isn't. It's it's a sort of book. That you need to spend a lot of time with. And to tell the honest truth, if I ever had to do a course, a university course on science fiction, this would be um, one of the main texts. Simply because, as just as you said, Karen, I bet every other book on the syllabus could be tied back to it in some way. Yeah, yeah. And also because the science is so strong. There's a, there's a lot of satisfaction in seeing um, a science fiction book of any era where the science foundation is that strong. Yeah, which is funny because again, you know, in in a way he was not he was not writing science fiction the way we understand it today and he wasn't consciously doing it the way we understand it today. Mm-hmm. And yet he was so freaking good at it. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I'm I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. Like I say, when I was in the middle of the first part, you know, that long extended part where he's searching out through the stars and that long extended cultural commentary when mm-hmm. he first meets the, the first other humans, um, I was like, oh, I should call Karen up and apologize. I'd forgotten <laughs> how slow this was. And then bam, it takes off. And I'm like, oh, never mind. It does take off. It does take off. There's a point where you're just drawn in because you're like, yeah, I have to know what happens next. I have to know what happens next. You think you know where it's going initially. And that's the bit, as you say, which is the, the slow build. And then when it really starts going, you're kind of like, okay, no, I, I got to go along with this ride, and I got to go read over this bit. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's completely different. And, and as well, when I came to it, I came to it knowing it was a 1930s text. Wait, and that, to me, doesn't make a difference. 1930s, right? 30s, yeah. yeah I did okay. say 30s. Yeah. 
So, so when you are aware of that, when you're aware that, um, you know, you're looking at an Oxbridge author as well, mm-hmm. and there was, there was really no concept of dumbing down literature in those days. Even if you were writing something that people would not think of as, or, or maybe what I should say is that maybe people would look at his work and think of it as sort of experimental because it's not precisely literary. Right, right. But it is experimental in the sense that he had certain ideas within his his grasp and knowledge of philosophy that he thought would get a broader audience if he were to put it into fictional form. And so in, in a sense, it is, uh, like I said, to me, it really is a kind of a Gulliver's Travels where you're, you're using this technique to, to transfer certain opinions, certain information, shall we say, mm-hmm. um, in a way that might not be palatable to, to, for somebody to have to pick it up and read it in nonfiction fashion. Right, right. But it's still going to have that flavor of almost pedestrian academia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, a little bit. It's still going to have that flavor because that's where the person is coming from. And once you appreciate that and, and get past it, it's still really really a good story yeah and and i love that you said you know you do, once it really gets moving you're, you're like i have to know what happens next even though there's nothing in this book that could be conventionally described as a plot <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah yeah you yeah. just have to know what what he's going to come up with next is what it really yeah. is and, and and i'm still i'm still in awe at all the different species and so on uh-huh. and, and, and and it was done so so sensibly because you you don't have a situation where uh, unbelievable things are happening like well let me rephrase that the unbelievable things that are happening are described in such a believable way yeah yeah <laughs> that you immediately shift them over into the category of oh yeah this could happen yeah, okay, and that's that's a gift that's a gift already but um you know sometimes you do read sci-fi where it's um it's your it's your i think Gary's described it as the the diverse space cantina or the, the, the space station. Yeah, yeah. Species just sort of strolling on through. And and I don't think we really quite believe that anymore. And Stapleton doesn't even try to to pretend that that is possible. Mm-hmm. He, he, he puts it all on a completely different level. And the level he puts it on is a level that you do, in fact, not and say, yeah, I can see this happening in a way that you can't see the space station scenario happening. Right, right. The Star Wars cantina. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. We should probably wrap it up there. My goodness, we've been going almost an hour and a half. Again? Oh, my... Sorry. Yeah, we're, okay, we're just going to have to kind of make a blanket apology for all these over-an-hour-long podcasts, but uh, thanks, everyone, again for sticking with us. Mm-hmm. I was happy to see uh, some, some people shouting out with some joy when, when they saw that Stapleton was coming on our lineup, so hopefully we won't have uh, exhausted everyone's patience. And as somebody who did not know about Stapleton before Karen introduced me to his work, I really have to say that if you've never heard of him before, you definitely need to go out and have a look at this. I would say, I, I would, I would say this is one of those classic writers that you you can't you can't get away with not knowing a bit about their work. I, I like to think so. Um, I think Stapleton is most one of the most valuable authors I read when I was investigating the pre-Campbell era of science fiction. Uh, mm-hmm. We should note, st- you can find Last and First Men and Starmaker um, as e-copies through um, a university in Adelaide, Australia. 
check, watch out for the copyright laws in your country of origin. Um, for people f to whom that is not accessible, Dover has put out an excellent um, edition of Last and First Men and Star Maker bundled together a as a print book, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. So let's see. So what's on the agenda for next week? Next week we have um, till we say. yes next episode we have till we have faces. C.S. Lewis. Oh, okay. And that is his. It's, a, it's the last book he wrote, and it's the one he considered to be his favorite. Cool. And I kind of think that it is as well. But sorry, not his favorite. His best. His ah. best. Now, I would say that if you're gearing up to read Till We Have Faces, to just have Cyrano de Bergerac in the back of your mind. And if you've never read Cyrano de Bergerac, you should definitely... If you've never well, read Cyrano de Bergerac, then shame on you. <laughs> shame on you. <laughs> it's a play. So basically, you can either maybe like rent a movie. There, there are various versions of it. Not a Roxanne, but The Truth About Cats and Dogs is a nice one. Um, mm. But... The one with Femme Gerard Depardieu is fantastic, and the subtitles will not trouble you at all. True. Um, so that's a good one to watch. Um, or if you feel like reading the French, you can go ahead and read the French and read it. But um, I think that the movie is probably the best bet. And keep that in the back of your head, because I am going to be making reference to both of them um, in a very connected fashion. Okay, excellent. And uh, I'm looking forward to reading to it. I haven't gotten to it yet because reading Star Maker put me a bit behind on my lo Locust reviewing, so I'm I'm running to catch up before Funny, my Something before my similar happened to me in terms of it putting me behind on my deadlines. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh <-huh. laughs> oh, well, thought, at no, least no, you no, suffered too. It's not that long. It won't take that long. <laughs> oh, Anyway, okay. so that. Well, thank you very much, and we will catch you again in another couple of weeks. Take care till then.